You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome to the broadcast, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you're tuned into the Republic Broadcasting Network. And, of course, I am broadcasting to you from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it is already the 12th of September 2012. But for those of you listening to my voice live stateside, you're listening to me on the evening of the 11th of September 2012. Of course, the 11th anniversary of the tragic events of 9-11-2001. And I'm sure that everyone listening to my voice right now has their own memories of that day and my own are imprinted quite firmly in my mind. I remember it. I assume that this is really the uh, the JFK-type event of our generation, and just as everyone remembers where they were and what they were doing on 11-22-1963, so too does my generation very much remember what they were doing on 9-11-2001. Myself, being freshly graduated from university, I was working at my first-ever job, as a uh, front desk general person around the office working for a commercial real estate uh, company in downtown Calgary, Alberta, Canada. I remember getting off the train, taking me to work one day, and meeting one of my co-workers who happened to casually mention that she had seen a plane had hit the World Trade Center in New York, and I didn't understand anything else about it. I didn't know what else was going on, so I didn't really even think too much about it. I thought it was just some sort of terrible accident that had happened. And little did I know that was going to be my introduction to the event that in some ways has come to shape and change my life, and I'm sure the lives of many of you out there for the worse in many ways, but hopefully in the end we can use this as a as a means of spreading awareness about what is really happening in our society. And certainly it wasn't until many years later that I began to truly question what had happened on 9-11-2001 and the lies that we have been told about that day, and of course the wars that have been waged in the name of that fictitious boogeyman organization that has been built up from the very in- its very inception by the CIA, Al-Qaeda, which is now, of course, our friend in Syria and Libya and anywhere else we want to use them as the sword of the New World Order, but our enemy, enemy boogeyman whenever we need a PR victory. And of course, we just refers to the governments of our selected countries, not the actual people of those countries. So it has been an event that has so fundamentally shaped our society that it's difficult to imagine what the last 11 years would have looked like without 9-11 having been there as the totem directing our society in the direction of tyranny. And all of the things that have flown from that, the Department of Fatherland Security and the TSA grabbing and groping little children as they try to fly across the country and all of the other infringements on basic liberties and human rights that have resulted from that day. And it is all based on a pack of lies, half-truths, and unanswered questions. This is something that I addressed on my most recent podcast episode at CorbettReport.com in an episode called The Meaning of 9-11 Truth. I hope you will check that out. I think it does uh, raise some of the uh, the important issues about what 9-11 Truth is about and why we are here doing what we're doing at the Corbett Report and in the alternative media generally, trying to raise awareness of these questions and their importance. But tonight on the broadcast, we're going to be taking a dip through the Corbett Report archives. Obviously, I've been covering this topic since way back, since episode one of the Corbett Report podcast five plus years ago now. 
I've been on the case of 9-11. So tonight we're going to be looking specifically at some videos that I've done over the past year for GRTV, some interviews with people like Paul Craig Roberts and Michelle Chosodowski and Mark Gaffney, as well as a short news piece I did on the desecration of the remains of the victims of 9-11 that has gone on and the cover-up of that that has gone on for years through the Pentagon. So that's all for me for tonight on the broadcast. We're going to turn it over, the mic over to some of the guests that have been here talking about 9-11 in the past as we reflect on this solemn occasion, the 11th anniversary of 9-11-2001. So stay tuned right there. We have lots of information coming up for you right after this break. Well, let's talk about the financial investigations that have or haven't taken place and what we do or don't know about them. And, of course, the one that most people have probably heard of but don't know very much about in detail is the investigation into the put options that were put on various stocks, not only the airlines but also some of the financial um, uh, firms that are lo- were located in the World Trade Center, which had put options placed against them prior to 9-11. And uh, there's a lot of information that's come out over the years, but still a lot that we don't know. Let's talk about those put options and how they play into this. Well, I looked at this in my in my book in a chapter about insider trading. And, um, uh, yeah, there's no mistake that people had inside knowledge and they were trying to make money on the, you know, off the attack. And the number one uh, company where the, the most put options was United Airlines, but Marshall McLennan was second. And that was one of the, also one of the 38 companies on the Securities and Exchange Commission list. They had a list of 38 suspect companies. And Marshall McLennan is especially curious also because there were so many coincidental uh, uh, connections uh, with Marshall McLennan and the Greenberg Empire. Marshall McLennan was based in Building 1, in fact, took the direct hit, direct hit from uh, the first plane, American Airlines 11, supposedly piloted by Mohammed Atta, although I don't think he was actually flying the plane. I, I argue in my book that... Uh, Remote control, remote access and control technology had come of age before, just before 9-11, and this was probably used. I, I argue that it, is, that it was used, uh, and of course that would mean that Mohammed Atta didn't really fly the plane into the tower. He was basically out of the loop and just sitting there like a, a victim. He was also a victim in the cockpit. You know, the, uh, the, the perpetrators were flying the plane, or, probably uploaded a, uh, a, a different flight plan that was designed to fly the plane into the tower, and there was probably a, receive, a transmitter in the tower at the, at the point of impact that was guiding the plane in. But uh, So Marshall McLennan figures prominently in all of these coincidences around the World Trade Center collapse, of World Trade Center impacts and collapse, and also with the put options and with the financial, the evidence for financial crimes. Richard Grove uh, was uh, was another uh, you know gave testimony on this, and uh, he's yet another source that uh, linking Marshall McLennan to possible financial crimes. I think you know you can't ignore. I mean, there's been very little discussion about Marshall McLennan's put options, but they were the, the second most put options. 
That's exactly right. And for people out there who don't know about that Martian McLennan story that Richard Grove was telling, let's talk about the computer software he was talking about that may have been used on 9-11 to facilitate trades that, uh, that flew under the radar. This was a, uh, a custom software that he, his company, he was a liaison between his software company and Martian McLennan. McLennan, they inked a contract, I think it was in 2000, this was a rushed job. They were worked on. They worked on it 24/7, and I think the deadline was supposed to be July the 15th, 2001. This was a designer software they, that, that his company had never done before. They were charting new territory, breaking new ground, and it was to link Marshall Clinic to its uh, to a number of other companies, and uh, that we don't uh, we don't really know who they were. But uh, Richard Grove thinks that that these links may have been used to, uh, to launder huge amounts of money, uh, and, and we don't know what else, in the hours before, maybe even during 9-11. So this was a designer software that had never been created before that was uh, ordered specifically, uh, especially by Marshall McLennan, and was finished and installed just before 9-11. Now, one... <laughs> Sorry. One of the things that, that forensic investigators might say about this is that, well, we can we can al- always detect traces within the hard drives of various uh, computers of, of whatever activity has gone on within them. So if there was some sort of trading that was happening on 9-11, some anomalous trading, it would have been picked up in the hard drives. But there's an interesting story about the hard drives uh, that were recovered from the World Trade Center themselves that most people don't know about. Let's talk about that. That's right, and I don't know if the, the we're talking about hard. Some of those hard drives might have been from Marshall McLennan. We don't know because that investigation basically went away. It just buried, just buried. <clears throat> it dropped off the edge of the planet. Uh, there were reports in uh, December of two thousand one uh, in Reuters and CNN about this this hard drive recovery effort. Uh, apparently, a couple of U.S. Uh, telecommunications companies contracted for this German company named Conbar to use this proprietary software using some kind of laser technology to recover data from these damaged hard drives that were recovered from the World Trade Center. And it's amazing that they pulled those, you know, these hard drives out of that rubble pile and they actually were able to recover 100% of the data on uh, everyone they looked at. That was the initial report. And those, those scientists or technicians or whoever that were doing this this recovery work, they were very suspicious because they they believed that they had uncovered evidence of uh, of uh, unexplained financial transactions. You know, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars worth, and just uh, I think they had already at that point examined thirty eight drives, and they were they had a whole you know a lot more they were going to look at, and then suddenly this thing just dropped out of sight. So we don't know what happened. <laughs> very, very strange how that happens. Well, earlier you mentioned the Greenberg Empire, talking about Hammer and Hank Greenberg of AIG. So let's talk a little bit about him and what that connection might be to 9-11. Well, AIG, uh, under Hank Greenberg, actually uh, uh, bought up this the uh, Wall Street, the CIA of Wall Street, Pro, uh, this company that did uh, security work, and it had gone bankrupt, and I think it was in 1993 that AIG saved it, and they basically bought it. And uh, then it became uh, an AIG affiliate 
And, uh, it was, you know, AI Crow was taking orders from that point on from uh, Hank Greenberg. And they had secure, also had the security con- one of the security contracts uh, for the World Trade Center. I think they were, the contract was to upgrade security at the, at the World Trade Center. And that contract extended right up until the day of the attack. So they had access to all the buildings. Uh, and one of the Crow uh, executives was... Uh, Howard, I think his name was Jerome Howard. He was uh, he was uh, Rudolph Giuliani's uh, uh, head of his he, uh, uh, his office of emergency management, I believe it was called, and they had a crisis center in Building Seven. And uh, you know this thing was had blast windows and had its own air ventilation system. I mean, it was complete, state of the art, and yet it was abandoned on 9/11. And yes, they spent millions of dollars um, carefully situating it in Building 7 and then abandoned it on the very morning when it was most needed, shortly before the building co- collapsed um, directly into its own footprint. <clears throat> An interesting coincidence. Well, uh, it, uh, all of this brings up uh, so many different unresolved issues, and unresolved because the investigations into them either were canceled or never completed or the results were never made public. Um, even the SEC investigation into the put options that we mentioned earlier was uh, was uh, eventually uh, that that entire investigation and all of its records were destroyed as part of routine record keeping so that the SEC no longer has the records that they uh, that they came up with in their own investigation. And uh, all of these things point to to a sort of pattern of uh, destruction of of evidence. Do you think we'll ever be able to come to the bottom of this financial money trail when it comes to 9-11? I think we'll be lucky uh, if we get to the bottom of it. However, it's quite possible somebody might come over to the uh, truth movement, somebody, some insider who stumbles upon or has some kind of insider knowledge about this, might come forward. You never know. That's possible. But there, there, you mentioned the pattern. Yes, there certainly is a pattern because the very same thing that happened or, you know, in, on 9-11 also happened in Oklahoma City where it's my understanding that just as in Building 7 they, was, they had stored the records for Enron and many other investigations into corruption and financial crimes that the SEC was, you know, was looking into when all that was destroyed. It's my understanding from this new film, uh, Noble Truth, that uh, the records for uh, water, uh, Whitewater were stored in uh, the Mira building in Oklahoma City and possibly possibly evidence uh, about uh, the, the MENA operation. You know, they were smuggling. Uh, they were, this was set up by the CIA to train pilots for the, during the Contra War in the 1980s. And according to various uh, witnesses, there were, uh, they were taking um, arms down to the Contras and they were returning with drugs and drug money that was being laundered through uh, a bank there in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. So the same pattern... That's right, and just uh, just for the record, that uh, documentary is a noble lie at anoblelie.com. But yes, uh, definitely exposing some of the similarities between what took place at uh, OKC and and 9/11 with the Enron records and WTC7. So let's step back for a moment and take a look at the big picture here, because of course the 9/11 Commission final report famously said that uh, th- that they were never able to come to the bottom of the the financing of the attacks or how the money was uh, was funneled to these. 
alleged hijackers, but uh, that ultimately that question is of little practical significance, and that is a direct quote, little practical significance, which is uh, a statement that on its face is so absurd that I don't think uh, anyone who reads it could read it with a straight face. What what do you th- make of that statement, and what do you make of, um, of uh, the the unwillingness of, of any level of either the government or media to look into the financial aspects of the 9-11? What does that really say about the uh, so-called investigation? Well, you know, what really rankles me, James, is the fact that the media allowed them to get away with this. Nobody asked any questions. You know, I mean, this is just so silly, it's ridiculous. There were 38 companies that were on the SEC suspect list, and yet only a couple of them are mentioned in the 9-11 Commission report, and they did a very most superficial job imaginable of, of you know, covering this, in fact, you know, whitewashing it. A couple of paragraphs in that in that 500, 600-page uh, report uh, on this. So, I mean, they hardly touched it at all, and, you know, the press let them get away with this. Well, it was a very uh, important uh, landmark in my life, certainly. Um, On the 9th of September, uh, following a crash course in FTP uh, transfers uh, um, with a young man who who actually was uh, physically handicapped and he came on a wheelchair to my home and he said, well, do it this way, and, and we got it going. And so on the 9th of September... Um, essentially operating with front page and, and very rudimentary uh, software. We launched the website. Uh, I manned it from my home. Um, it was, um, I, I updated it. Uh, I, had, I had a student, actually, in philosophy, was helping me with the, with the, with the postings. And um, this was on the 9th of, uh, the 9th of September, 2001, um, and then I recall vividly on the morning of September 11, I was driving to the office uh, at the University of Ottawa, and uh, I listened to the announcements on the radio. And when I got to the university um, a little bit before 11 o'clock, um, the Bush administration had already uh, declared without any evidence that Al-Qaeda, with the support of the Taliban government of Afghanistan, were behind the 9-11 attacks. And this statement was actually made by, by um, George Tenet, the, the head of the CIA at the moment, uh, at, at that particular time. And then uh, in the evening at 9.30 p.m., um, they convened a war cabinet. They convened a war cabinet, which was integrated by a select number of top intelligence and military advisors, and then they launched the war on Afghanistan, essentially. Uh, they launched the war on terrorism. And the following day, uh, as, as some people might recall, uh, NATO actually corroborated uh, the under under the articles of the Washington uh, uh, of the of the Washington uh, Treaty, uh, which is the main document of NATO. They said 
that Afghanistan had attacked the United States. That's essentially what it meant. And, uh, and uh, the U.S. media in chorus was calling for military inter- intervention against Afghanistan without a shred of evidence as to, as to the involvement of, of a foreign country in these attacks. And then barely uh, four weeks later, on the 7th of October, Afghanistan was bombed and invaded by U.S. troops. And uh, we, had, we were led to believe that the decision to go to war uh, had, been taken, uh, had been taken on the spur of the moment, on, on the evening of 9-11, by the war cabinet in response to the attacks uh, by a foreign country, uh, which was supporting al-Qaeda, and, uh, and that was, in, in fact, the initial, initiation of this, of, uh, of this war on terrorism. And it was also the initiation of the big lie, uh, because Afghanistan had nothing to do with these 9-11 attacks. There was absolutely no evidence. Uh, and, in fact, uh, there was no evidence even that al-Qaeda was behind the 9-11 attacks. Um, and, in fact, confirmed subsequently... Um, Osama bin Laden had been hospitalized uh, on the 9th of September um, in a military hospital in Rawalpindi. Uh, and anybody who knows Rawalpindi knows that it's swarming with U.S. military advisors so that if he had been treated for kidney, his kidney problems on the 9th of September, released uh, one or one day later, it's not entirely clear when he was released, uh, he could not have organized these 9-11 attacks from his hospital bed in, in, the, you know, in the city of Rawalpindi, which is essentially the, the, the headquarters of the Pakistani military, Pakistani intelligence, uh, and um, uh, a country which has very close military and intelligence ties with, with the United States of America. But what disturbed me most, I think, in, in, those, um, in those events of 9-11 is that uh, several things. One, the public uh, was not informed uh, by the media that a large-scale theater operation against Afghanistan cannot be planned on the spare of the moment and executed in a matter of three or four weeks, which was ultimately the case. The war cabinet declares war on Afghanistan in the evening of 9-11, and then three, let's say three, four, four weeks later, uh, on the 7th of October, Afghanistan is bombed and invaded. And anybody who has the minimal understanding of military planning will know that that type of uh, operation takes months and months and sometimes years of preparation. But at least several months of preparation would have been required to wage that type of, of large-scale military operation against uh, Afghanistan, which suggests that the planning of the war in Afghanistan predated 9-11, and that 9-11, in effect, was the pretext and the justification to wage a war which was already on the drawing board of the Pentagon, which was in the pipeline, which was in an advanced stage, a state of readiness. And that is very important. Whatever one's view on 9-11, 9-11 provided the pretext and the justification for waging a war on humanitarian grounds. 
with the full support of world public opinion. Okay, James, uh, first uh, let me make it clear that I've not made any original uh, contributions to uh, 9-11 research. I'm just a reporter, um, and uh, I certainly don't know everything about it, but I have read uh, widely among those who are skeptical. And what this article, this recent article, does is just sort of uh, asked the question, how well has the government's uh, explanation held up after 10 years? And I conclude it hasn't uh, held up very well. Uh, we, we have, for example, the uh, chairman and vice chairman and senior legal counsel of the 9-11 Commission itself who have written books in which they partially disassociate themselves from their own 9-11 report. And they report uh, that the commission was set up to fail, that uh, the government uh, made a decision not to tell the truth, that information was withheld from them, uh, that uh, 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 witnesses uh, who appeared who appeared before them were mainly the people who agreed with the government's uh, account. And that NORAD had lied to them and that they had considered, uh, or if not NORAD, uh, I think they said Pentagon officials and FAA officials. I think that's what they said, had lied to them. And that they had actually considered uh, referring that uh, on obstruction of justice charges. Well, this is an amazing sort of uh, uh, outcome from the, three senior people uh, leading the commission, uh, and so it raised questions. Now, to be clear, uh, none of these uh, three suggested that the government was was uh, complicit in the attack itself. And what they seem to be uh, saying is that the government uh, either needed to cover up its incompetence or to cover up that it actually knew more about the uh, alleged uh, attackers than it let on. They're not very specific about uh, <clears throat> the nature of the lies other than that they believe they were lied to. When we also have the fact that one of the members of the commission, Max Cleland, the former U.S. senator, uh, had resigned from the commission on the grounds that the fix was in, that... Uh, that they weren't going to have uh, full access to the information uh, under the rules that the White House has established for the commission and that the the commission uh, was already compromised. Well, uh, this is enough to, to make you wonder what really was going on. And then uh, in this decade that's passed, we've had a number of, professional groups arise. We've had the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. Uh, There are now 1,500 of these architects and engineers who 
based on the base of their own professionalism and expertise, say these buildings could not have fallen for the reasons given that they had to have fallen for some other reasons. And uh, we now, and we have physicists who have raised serious questions. And most recently, we had a report from a, an international scientific team led by, I think his name is uh, Niels Harrit, a professor of nanochemistry at uh, the University of Copenhagen, who reports finding nanothermite in the dust of the of the of the buildings. Well. When you look around at the response to these kinds of statements and findings, you don't see any. <laughs> they, they're lar- largely not reported in the American media. Um, uh, Professor Harrett uh, has been on a tour of Canadian universities explaining the argument. But uh, as far as I can tell, this wasn't even reported in the United States. And then we have... Uh, Firefighters for 9-11 truth, pilots for 9-11 truth, uh, uh, scholars for 9-11 truth. And when you have uh, over 100 firefighters, many of whom were actually in the buildings, and they report not only hearing numerous explosions, some in the sub-basements, but experiencing them personally, you know, being thrown about by the explosions, uh, and and you have uh, pilots, both commercial and military, who question the maneuvers. You would think that there would be some response to this, um, but there's not. Uh, there's just sort of a blanket. Oh, these are conspiracy theorists, and so they don't believe uh, the government's reports. So we don't have to pay attention to them. Well, you know the government's own. A report is a conspiracy theory. In fact, uh, it seems to me to be an even less likely conspiracy theory because it says that a handful of, uh, of Arabs outwitted uh, the CIA, the FBI, indeed all 16 American intelligence agencies, all intelligence agencies of America's allies, including Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency. They outwitted the National Security Council, uh, NORAD, air traffic control, and, uh, and airport security four times in one hour on the same morning. Now, if something this improbable happened, it, from my own time in government, uh, what you would have had the president, uh, the Congress, the media demanding to know how there could be such massive failure, <laughs> not just of intelligence, but operational failure, the inability to get up interceptor jets, uh, so many failures. And yet uh, the uh, Bush administration uh, resisted any kind of inquiry. For a year or perhaps two, I can't remember. I remember the 9-11 families were demanding an inquiry. They wanted to know how could this happen. And finally, they put together simply a political commission. There were no experts on this commission. They were all former politicians who, generally speaking, are very tame people. They've been there a long time. Uh, they're... Uh, 
human capital is tied up with their connections to Washington. They don't want to ruin those connections. So they're basically compliant. And yet we see uh, four of the members of the commission were not, <laughs> at least after, uh, after the uh, report came out. So when you, when you look at all of this, uh, it, it makes you wonder what really is going on when there's so much contrary evidence, not from kooks, but from professionals. You, you can't say a professor of nanochemistry at the University of Copenhagen is a kook who would make up a story about nanothermite if, it, if he didn't find it. <laughs> he, he certainly couldn't go out and buy any to add to the dust. You can't get it. It's, it's, it's a military-grade thing. So you would think that uh, there would be all kinds of uh, uproar and what's going on and and then we have all these public statements from the uh, from NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, that they didn't look for explosives. <laughs> In fact, they said they didn't look for explosives because there was no evidence that they would find any evidence for explosives. <laughs> so if you can parse that circular logic, yeah. uh, good luck. So, you know, it just looks bad. And, and yet... Um, we, we don't know that the United States government uh, blew up the buildings. If you look at the buildings, they're not falling down from structural damage. You know, the, the structural damage was asymmetrical. So you would think that if, it, if you were going to have uh, falling buildings from, from airplane damage, that the top part of the building above where the plane hit would fall over in a direction where the plane hit and took out supports. Nothing like this happened. It comes straight down. <laughs> and uh, if you watch it, it look, doesn't look like buildings falling down. It looks like buildings blowing up. And this is completely clear in the case of Building 7. This this is a, a controlled demolition. And we have on... Uh, on tape, the uh, leaseholder, Larry Silberstein, saying that the decision was made to pull the building. Now, pulling a building means you have uh, have it wired for demolition and you make it fall. And we have the fact that a high school, phys uh, high school physics teacher uh, forced NIST uh, to abandon its explanation of that building and to acknowledge that for a period of its fall, it was in free fall. And the only way you can have a building falling in free fall is there must be no support underneath the area that's falling. So the only way you can have all uh, support uh, disappearing <laughs> at the same time is with some form of explosive or some form of uh, uh, steel searing, melting, uh, explosive. So when you look at all of this, you come back to the question, why aren't there questions? Why, why is all of this simply ignored? I mean, there has been some effort to address some of the contrary evidence, but most of it is just ignored. And, and people say, well, look, if you, uh, had, if this was a government conspiracy, uh, you couldn't keep it secret. 
But you most certainly can. We, we've had a hundred firefighters in the building say <laughs> they heard explosions. They experienced them, but it has no effect. So I think it's very easy to keep something secret. Most people, all they know about it is they saw on television the buildings, the tower, the two towers. Most people don't even know about the third building yet. They saw the two towers, and the government told them Al-Qaeda did it. And that's the end of the story. It You know, to try to read... Uh, technical stuff or scientific explanations and and most people don't have the education they can't follow it and they're content with the government's account it is emotionally satisfying the contrary account is very disturbing <laughs> and so we have this amazing situation James where the defining element of our time. This is the most important event of our time. It is it has caused the United States to be in perpetual war for over a decade. Uh, it's, it, the war now involves has involved six Muslim countries. There doesn't appear to be any end of it. Syria seems to be uh, what, uh, about to be hit as well and Iran is still there. It has brought us into confrontations with China and Russia. <clears throat> the the uh, destruction of the Gaddafi regime in Libya, is, it was designed to evict China from its oil investments in Libya. Um, we, we, and we have here at home the rise of a domestic police state. Uh, it, it now turns out that uh, that Justin Raimondo's uh, internet site, Anawar.com, is uh, being monitored by the FBI, and uh, who suspect him of uh, being uh, uh, in the employ of, uh, of, of foreign powers, <laughs> simply for opposing the war. <clears throat> and uh, we've had uh, well-known, uh, internationally known. Uh, Law professors put on terrorist watch lists because they refuse to be informers on their clients. In other words, you know, one of the uh, requirements of uh, being an attorney is you respect the attorney-client privilege. And yet uh, when they refuse to uh, uh, violate uh, this and not rat on their clients, they get put on terrorist watch list. Well, these are amazing developments for a country that claims to have freedom and democracy and a rule of law and accountable government, and yet nothing results. So it looks like the United States is uh, committed uh, to wars, which are exhausting us economically, exhausting resources. They, it's produced uh, budget deficits and uh, debt ceiling crisis <laughs> that, that threatens the social safety net. It threatens the dollar, which is the world reserve currency. So it threatens the entire financial system of the world. And uh, everybody's rights are disappearing. We have, to, if you want to fly, you have to go through a porno scanner or else sexual groping. <laughs> All of this is an absurdity. And and yet we can't look at the cause of this. This strikes me as a huge failure of an alleged uh, democratic system. 
Well, that that is exactly the point, I think. Um, it, it is rather overwhelming to think of all of the different ways that 9-11 has affected our society, and yet whenever anyone tries to raise any questions about what happened that day, they are immediately dismissed by the uh, both government spokesmen and their lapdog media, which seems to be completely, uh, utterly in line with it. So so let's just get back to, to what you're say- you were saying earlier, because uh, I would just like to stress that everything you just said there is n- absolutely non-controversial as matters of fact, and yet it would be quite roundly dismissed by by any type of uh, media discussion on the on the issue but uh but getting back to the 911 commissioners themselves i mean some of the the actual quotations of what they actually said are so startling and i think very few people have really taken the time to actually study what the the commissioners themselves said about their own commission of course there's the uh, the famous quip uh, from hamilton and kane that they were set up to fail but there are others startling admissions as well including john lehman who said that uh, we purposely put together a staff that had, in a way, conflicts of interest, which is a rather stunning admission. And uh, the uh, senior counsel to the commission, John Farmer, said, quote, I was shocked at how different the truth was from the way it was described. The tapes told a radically different story from what had been told to us and the public for two years. This is not spin. This is not true. And, uh, and just quotation after quotation from the commissioners themselves showing that there was a concerted cover-up going on at, at various levels of, of government and within their own commission to keep the truth from the people. And yet, despite this, uh, again, people are, are dismissed for having any questions about that. That's a remarkable state of affairs if we take the, uh, the proposition at face value that the media is still an independent entity that's out there fighting for the public interest. But I guess... We pretty much have to dismiss that notion now. Now that uh, the last ten years has proven that that the uh, the media has become warmongers and and basically spokesmen for the government, hasn't it? It's a ministry of propaganda. It's, you know what uh, Gerald Slinty calls them prostitutes. <laughs> Pentagon admits more 9-11 remains dumped in landfill. This is Behind the Headlines on Global Research TV. A new report released on Monday by the Pentagon reveals that some of the unidentifiable remains from victims at the Pentagon and Shanksville sites on September 11th were disposed of in a landfill. The details come from a report by a review committee examining operations of the Air Force Mortuary Division at Dover Air Force Base. The report notes that before 2008, Disposal of unidentified remains was delegated to subcontractors. The guidelines at the time called for the contractors to incinerate the remains and dump the ashes in landfills. In a press conference earlier this week, Pentagon spokesman John Abizade confirmed that this section of the report applied to the remains of some of the victims of 9-11. While I understand how sensational the notion is, there was a point where people considered going to the crematorium, and in some states it's law, that that is the final disposition of the fallen. This is not the first controversy to arise regarding the disposal of remains of 9-11 victims. In 2003, New York City medical examiner Charles Hirsch wrote that he was virtually certain that human remains from the World Trade Center had been left at the Fresh Kills landfill, where debris from the buildings had been taken to be sifted. In 2005, the city medical examiner officially ended the process of identifying remains from the debris of the World Trade Center site, with only 1,585 victims being identified by their remains. 
In 2007, victims' families' worst fears about what happened to the unidentified remains were confirmed by Eric Beck, a senior supervisor of the recycling facility that sifted the debris, who swore in an affidavit that some of the remains ended up in a mixture that was used to pave roads and fill potholes in New York. In 2008, Judge Alvin Hellerstein of the Federal District Court in Manhattan threw out a case by victims' family members who were petitioning for the right to continue searching the landfill for the remains of their loved ones. In 2010, the city relented and the search began again for the human remains, this time using new methods and technologies. The remains of 20 more victims were soon discovered in the rubble. The mystery of why the city fought so hard to prevent the victim's family members from continuing their search for their loved ones is compounded by the entire operation to remove and destroy the evidence from Ground Zero as quickly as possible. By September 29, 2001, just two weeks after the attacks, over 130,000 tons of debris had been removed from the site. In all, 185,101 tons of structural steel were hauled away from Ground Zero, most of it sold to the Chinese firm Bao Steel, which purchased it at $120 per ton, significantly below the average price of $160 paid by local U.S. steel mills. Of that 185,101 tons of steel, almost all of it was scrapped, with FEMA saving just 150 pieces of steel for further study. The building performance assessment team tasked by FEMA with writing the WTC building performance study was not even allowed access to the site or to collect steel samples from the salvage yards. Even more remarkably, as firefighters like Eric Lawyer have pointed out, the destruction of evidence represented by this so-called cleanup of the site in fact violated numerous specific guidelines about the preservation of crime scene evidence for further investigation. The NFPA 9.3.6, it covers spoilation of evidence. What Specifically what it reads is once evidence has been removed from the scene, it should be maintained and not destroyed or altered <clears throat> until the investigation is complete. The steel was melted down prior to the investigation. We know that from their own admission. This is no conspiracy theory stuff. 19.2.4, exotic accelerants. If, the, if on the scene you find melted steel or concrete, you should consider the use of exotic accelerants. And they specifically say in the manual, thermite mixtures produce exceedingly hot fires that can account for melted steel and concrete. That also says they leave residues that can be tested for visually and chemically identifiable. Again, they did not test for it. And just put in perspective, on a routine house fire, if we suspect even the slightest use of an accelerant, we're going to test for it when there's no fatalities, when there's very little property damage. So to not do it on this, there is absolutely no excuse. I can't drive that point home enough. 